Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is John eleven seventeen through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. It's great to see you. If we have not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. And man, it's so fun to have you today. Happy Easter. I, I am swimming in a sea of pastel right now. And so it's it, well done on the outfits today. Well done. Uh, if you're here today and this is your first time in church in a while, or maybe you got dragged along by a friend and you're not really sure why you're here, uh, wrestling with what it is that you believe about church or Christianity, all of that, man, I get it. And we are so glad that you're here. I, I mean this as, as honorably as I can. I have a lot of respect for you. I have a lot of respect because I know that uh, the church can, for me in my past, has been uh, some of the, the cause of some serious hurt and pain, and yet the church has also been some of the most beautiful moments I've ever had is, has come from the church, and so I don't know where you're coming from or what you're bringing into the room, but it's all, it's all, none of it's off limits. It's all welcome, and we're so glad that you're here. We hope today will actually be really helpful for you as you wrestle with the claims of Jesus, and with that in mind, there's something I want to let you know about. Uh, starting in two weeks, we kick off our new series on the gospel of Mark, and some of you are like, praise God, we're going to be in the New Testament. We've been in Job for so long, and uh Try to like withhold your excitement and joy about this, but uh, Gospel of Mark starts two weeks, and if you're trying to figure out what it is that you believe about Jesus, what it is that you believe about Christianity, let's just hear it straight from the horse's mouth, amen? Like, let's, let's get a chance to actually hear it from uh, Jesus and some of the eyewitnesses there. Sit in and listen to his teachings, watch what he does, wrestle with his death and his resurrection and what all that means for our world today. We think this will be a really great series, so excited to wrap up Job next week and then kick off the gospel of Mark in two weeks. Sound good? Okay, great. Let's, uh, let's jump in. Let me take a second and pray for you and we'll get started. Father, I wanna thank you for my friends. I wanna thank you for the people in the room that are with us today. God, we, we ask that the reality and the beauty 
of what it even means that you rose from the dead would sink into our hearts today. And I want to thank you, especially for my friends that have questions about that or not sure of the significance of that event or not even sure if they believe it. God, we pray today that through the power of your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would draw our hearts into Jesus. And we want to thank you that even in this moment, it's not lost on me that I'm not praying to some imagination. I'm not praying to some thing. I'm praying to a living, breathing person who rose from the dead. And we want to thank you for that truth today. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Something really crazy happened to me this last year. I don't know if this happened to you and your family or not. Something really bizarre started happening. And it was in the early stages of COVID when it didn't yet have a chance to get all political, you know? And it was in that stage where we were all a little bit unsure. How does this thing spread? Is it airborne? Is it, you know, do I touch an Amazon box and get it that way? Like, we don't know how this thing spreads and the whole world is shutting down. This feels a little bit scary. The thing that happened to me is my wife and I started watching all these end-of-the-world pandemic movies. Was I the only one that did this? Like, I don't know what it was about a pandemic, but I thought, this is a great time to watch other people going through a pandemic. And so I started watching things like Contagion, which is a great movie. Uh, I Am Legend, World War Z, on and on the list goes. And it wasn't just our list of movies that changed. I even got online to, uh, to try to buy a board game. By the way, everybody got into board games in 2020. It's no longer the nerdy thing to do. It's like, I'm just trying to survive here, okay? So we're all getting into board games. And I tried to get this one online It's called Pandemic, and it's literally about four diseases that spread through the whole world, and you work with the CDC to get those diseases to to stop spreading. And I don't know why, but I was like, oh, there's a board game called Pandemic. Let's buy that and play it during a pandemic. That sounds fun. But it was sold out because everybody else had the exact same idea. Isn't that bizarre that as a culture, we responded to the pandemic by wanting to watch end-of-the-world dystopian movies? In fact, it wasn't just our movies, but in March of 2020, Agnes Callard wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times titled, Why Am I Reading Apocalyptic Novels Now? And it was hitting on this whole idea that even our choice of novels shifted where we wanted to read about other people that were experiencing a global blackout or a pandemic or an end-of-the-world event that functioned as a catastrophe. Isn't this strange of us to respond this way? Did this happen to you? Or was I the only one? I I don't think I was the only one because I remember at one point on Netflix, the top 10 most watched movies in the US were all end of the world dystopian movies. And here's why. Agnes Callard goes on in her article to basically say that the reason why we did this as a culture is because in our own way, it was our way of processing the reality of death and these uncontrollable scary events in our world. It was our way to enter into the story, as it were, and wrestle with what would I do if that happened to me? Like, would I become the crazy, like, uh, sociopath that's killing everybody and taking over towns? Or would I become, like, the good person that's protecting? Like, how would I respond if this catastrophic event happened? But I actually think there's a deeper reason why we responded this way. And I think the deeper reason is because deep down as humans, all of us can relate to this narrative of we had the world the way that we wanted, and then something happened to break that world. 
And there's this haunting sense of we could only get it back. Eventually in the story, a character comes along and through a sacrifice or through something that they do, they usher in a whole new world and they bring the type of world that we've lost back. And actually, it's fascinating to think that almost all of these end-of-the-world movies, almost all of these novels that are dystopian, end with a Christ-like character sacrificing himself or herself for the good of the community to get rid of the contagion or get rid of the, the, the thing that's killing everybody and usher in a world of peace. This is what the storyline that you and I resonate with most. Why is that? Here's why. It's because deep down, you and I actually know that no matter how much kale, soy grass, whatever we drink or eat, no matter how many times we go to CrossFit, and trust me, we all know you go to CrossFit, you've told us, no matter how healthy you are, there's coming a day where you and I are going to die. And that's a scary reality. How do you face the reality of death? We long to be rescued from death. One author in a book called Life After Death says this, Is death the end or is there something more? This is the ultimate question. It has been the defining issue for entire cultures from the ancient Egyptians to the present. And in truth, there is no more important question that any of us will face. It is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. If you have doubts about its significance, go to a hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who has recently lost a child and you will discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. Happy Easter, by the way. <laughs> now, what do we do about this reality of death? Like, our, our, our culture currently is going to tell us it's just a fact of life. It is what it is. People live, and then they die, and when they die, they cease to exist And it's just something that you and I need to get over and embrace as a fact of life. It's just the cold, hard reality of life on planet Earth. You're going to die, and that's it. And yet when we hear those really secular, naturalistic explanations of our world and what happens when we die, there's something in us that protests. Whether you're honest with yourself about this or not, there's something in you that's like, no, that can't be right. There has to be more. There must be more to this life than just that. And, and, and I've, I've now gotten everything that the culture says that I should get, and I'm still not happy, and I'm still missing something. Stump, something still feels thin. We don't have language for this. We don't know what to do for this, but we know that death is coming, and it feels like an intruder, and it feels like an enemy, and we fight it at every turn. Why? Here's why. It's because you and I were actually made for life. We were not made to die, we were made for life. So what I want to do real quickly is I want to just walk you through the storyline of Scripture and show you the significance of, from Jesus' own perspective, what went wrong in the world and, and the way that God intended things to be and what God is actually doing to put things right. So here's the first thing I want you to see, and it's creation. You and I were made for life. The story of the Bible starts with God creating and actually designing the, 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 the world to be a place where God and humanity would dwell together forever. See, God had never intended for us to live in separation of his presence. He actually wanted us to be with him forever. And there is a type of life that God has given us that no English word can fully understand or no English word could fully really grasp the significance of life as it's defined in Scripture. Because life in Scripture is not just referencing breath in your lungs. 
It's not just referencing neurons in your brain firing. Life in scripture, the the Hebrew word to best describe the type of life that God designed and created is a word shalom. Shalom, as defined by Tim Keller, says this. Shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension. Can you imagine? Fullest, fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all the relationships are right and perfect and filled with joy. That was the type of life that you and I were created to experience, a life where our relationship with God the Creator was one of peace and wholeness and joy and love, a, a, a type of life where our relationship with other humans was free of conflict and filled with grace and mercy and love, and a life where not just with God and each other, but even to the planet itself, there's a right relationship that we have with planet Earth, and it's responding back to us in a right way. This was the type of life that God designed for you and I to experience. But you know the story. It didn't stay that way for long. That's the second thing I want you to see, and it's the fall. And really, at the fall, this was the intrusion of death itself. You see, what happened in what we call as Christians the fall is when actually as humanity, we made a decision to reject the way of God. We made a decision to uh, basically push him out of the picture and define our own version of right and wrong. What is good and evil for myself? How do I express myself in this world as I want to express it, not as my creator has designed or told me to express it? And so what happened in this rejection of God, the life giver, it's like we pulled the plug on life itself. And when that happened, that shalom style life, that fullness and that peace and that wholeness that we were created to enjoy was completely fractured and broken. It was fractured in our relationship with God It was fractured in our relationship with other humans, and even it affected our relationship to the physical, ordered world around us. There was something that happened where death, capital D, death, entered the world, and with it, dysfunction and all kinds of destruction. Now, that's all a result of our sin, but what do you think of when I say the word sin? What comes to mind? I think if you grew up in Oklahoma, it's very common for us to say, oh, sin is like, I made a mistake. We'll even say things like, oh, we all sin, we all make mistakes. And it's a way of defining sin in our culture is just, oops, we did something wrong. Or we might say, if maybe you're in a place of deconstructing your faith, you've walked away from the church and you're kind of coming back but not sure where you land, then maybe for you, sin is more seen as these arbitrary list of rules that God has placed on us to essentially keep us from fully expressing ourselves the way that we're designed to. Really keeping us from a type of joy and happiness just because God is viewed as a cosmic killjoy that gives us these lists of arbitrary rules so that we don't have any fun. Or maybe you think of sin, and for you the word sin is offensive because the only thing that's by definition a sin in your life is the word sin itself. To say something is a sin feels wrong to you. Wherever you are on that spectrum of understanding sin, I think that it's really key to actually understanding our human experience on earth because we need this category to understand what has gone wrong, what has happened. So let me just take a second and expand your vision of sin and its effects in our world. 
Uh, maybe you could relate to this photo of uh, what happens when you and I sin. This is an image of shame. Uh, it's interesting that as a culture, we've lost our ability to feel guilt, but we still carry shame. I mean, many of us are walking around sitting with therapists trying to process what we might call toxic shame, where we know that it's not just that I've done something, but I myself, something has happened, and I feel wrong deep down in myself. It's this idea of shame. Without sin, we have no capacity to understand the shame that you and I carry in our day-to-day lived experience. But sin is bigger than just my individual relationship with myself or with God and this concept of shame. Sin actually goes outside of us. And I'll show you this other picture. This is becoming more and more common in our world, the, the rise of violent crime in the U.S. For decades, we've been on a decline of violent crime, but actually recently it's on the rise. You think about the news headlines of two 21-year-olds, one killing 10 people in Boulder, Colorado, one killing eight people at three different spas, blaming it on his sexual addiction and saying, I'm just going to kill these people so other people don't have to be tempted by them sexually. Do you know what we call that type of violent crime and behavior? Sin. Or maybe to expand it even further, show you this photo. This photo comes from Myanmar. And what's currently happening in Myanmar is the government has basically folded. The military has started a coup and taken over. And this is a, a young girl who is mourning the death of her brother that was shot for a peaceful protest to the government that was taking over. Do you know what we call corrupt governments? Sin. Or maybe even to go out a little further, it's not just something that affects our relationship with governments or other humans, but here's another photo here, and this is the flooding in Australia. I mean, this is bizarre. It's once-in-a-generation flooding that's happened, and you just get the sense that when 40,000 people are getting displaced out of their homes, that something has gone wrong in the created world, but we just don't know what. And you and I get, by the way, a Saturday reminder every week at noon that something is off in our world as that tornado siren slowly starts to blare in the background. Or maybe this photo here, this is taken a couple days ago in Peru. All of these graves are recent, and this is from COVID. And you think about the global impact of COVID over almost 3 million people that have died from this pandemic. And you just get the sense that we live in a world where there's sickness and disease and decay and death. Something is off. And friends, here's the answer to what is off. It's actually sin. Because the fall and our sin, our rejection of God, has brought about death. You see, God is against sin, not because he's like, hey, I just don't want you to make any mistakes, or I'm anti-fun. That's not the issue here. Actually, what's happening is God is for our thriving. He's for our flourishing. He's for our life as it's best lived out. And sin has a way of just breaking that apart. That's why he's against sin, because sin leads to dysfunction and it leads to death, both in my relationship with God, but also in my relationship with the created order. So here's what's happened in the story. We knew that we had a world the way that it was designed to be. Something has happened to break apart that world, and all of us deep down have this longing to return. Or to use J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, statement from a letter to a friend, he says, we all long for Eden. We are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted. It's gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. See, that might help describe some of that existential angst that you have, that you know something is off, but just not sure what. It's because you've lost the world that God intended for us to experience originally. And so what you and I have done in response is we've tried to recreate 
shalom. We've tried to recreate uh, heaven on earth, but without the king. We want the kingdom, but no king. We want heaven, but no presence of God. And we're just going to try to create and, and have our technology and all of our advancements as a culture propel us to a type of utopia. And it's pretty amazing what we've developed, isn't it? We've got modern medicine. We've got uh, Amazon one-day shipping. Praise be to God. How crazy that you can click something, and a couple hours later, it's at your house. It's amazing. You've got uh, restaurants, you've got third wave coffee shops, you've got dog parks, you've got economic development left and right. Basically anything that you could ever desire at the click of your fingers and yet somehow we're still missing something and we don't know what. We still feel this haunting sense that our lives are thin and even if I acquire everything the culture tells me to acquire, I'm still going to face the great enemy, death. What do I do? Or as Julian Barnes said it when he opened up his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, he used these words, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you don't have language for it, but deep down, late at night, you think, I don't know what's happening, but I miss God. You would never use that phrase, but you're missing the life that you were intended to experience, the life in the kingdom of God as it was designed to be lived. Now, what you and I would think that God would do in this is be like, hey man, you guys screwed this up, so see ya, it's on you to fix it. But actually, that is not the story that Christianity tells us. There's good news here because what God does is he looks down at all of the ways that we've unleashed death and dysfunction and destruction on the world and on each other and our human relationships. And what God decides to do is breathtaking. He actually enters our death-filled world to put death to death. He actually enters the world to do something about this dysfunction and destruction and lack of life. Notice what Jesus says about himself and his ministry in John 11. If you don't have a Bible, these words are on the screen. This is one of the most significant lines in the Gospels. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's not just describing life with breath in our lungs life. He's saying, hey, I'm the resurrection and that full type of life that you've been longing for, that wholeness and that shalom and that peace, I am the resurrection and I'm the life. So here's the third and final thing that I want you to see today. And that's redemption, which is Jesus's war on death. One of my favorite stories in the Bible comes from John chapter 11, and I wish we had more time to unpack this, but the short version is that uh, Jesus was really close to two ladies named Mary and Martha, who were sisters, and then they had a brother named Lazarus. He was really close to the whole family, and he gets word that Lazarus is getting sick. Now, imagine in that culture, without modern medicine, without hospitals on every corner, no ambulances, the little cough that develops into a fever can be a really scary thing to have. And Lazarus isn't getting better. He starts to decline. Word gets to Jesus. Jesus eventually makes his way over to Lazarus. But tragically, by the time Jesus gets to Lazarus, Lazarus had already died. And in fact, he'd been dead for four days. And so Jesus is interacting with Mary and Martha in the scene in John 11. And I just want to pull out a few things real briefly from the story. Look at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's not like an angry accusation at Jesus. That's like a, a, a show of confidence. Hey, had you been here, you could have stopped this, but now it's too late. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then notice these breathtaking words. Jesus wept. What does God do when he stands in the presence of death? He doesn't shrug his shoulders. He doesn't feel distant and removed from the situation. He doesn't say, this is just a fact of life. You gotta learn to deal with it, get over it. No, when Jesus comes face to face with death, he weeps. Now, if you know the rest of the story, it might not be shocking that he raises Lazarus from the dead, but let it shock you today that Jesus weeps at death because death was never supposed to be the way it was. And part of what's happening in this story, it's a microcosm of Easter itself because I don't know what you've carried in the room with you, but if you feel like there's death today, if you feel like there's dysfunction in your life, if you, like, if you feel like there's a lack of wholeness, if you feel like you look around the world and you don't have words to explain what's gone on, Jesus is not looking by, unmoved by your situation. He looks at you with your pain and with your loss and with your death. And Jesus himself weeps with those who weep. He's moved by the pain of death. It's one of the takeaways that you and I have at Easter. But it's not just that he weeps at death. Notice what he goes on to do. I don't know if you saw this line where it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled in verse 33. This is difficult for us to understand. We kind of think that he was just sad, but there's another emotion at play here. In fact, in Greek, this phrase deeply moved literally means to be moved with anger and indignation. Why is Jesus angry in this moment? Because he doesn't just weep with Lazarus, but he shows up at the tomb and he gets angry. Why? Well, some people have said, well, he's angry at Mary and Martha for doubting his power. I don't think that's a good answer to the question. Some have said, well, he's actually really angry and annoyed at the crowds that are there because they're creating a scene and he's about to do something and he doesn't want them to get in the way. I don't think that's a good answer. Some, ironically, some commentators have said, well, he's actually angry at Lazarus for dying, right? It's like, I'm so mad that you died. You've just ruined everything, that you died. It's probably not what's happening here. And then finally, some have said, no, actually, Jesus is intensely angry with himself for not getting to Lazarus on time. Had I only gotten there a few days before, I could have stopped this. None of those are good answers. Here's why Jesus is angry. Because Jesus hates death. Jesus is actually not angry at himself. He's not angry at Mary or Martha. He's not angry at Lazarus for dying. Jesus is angry at death because death is the enemy. Death is the intruder. Death has invaded the good world that God has created. And Jesus is coming face to face with that in the story. And he's not just moved with compassion. He's moved with anger. Death should not be. This is the story of Easter. And in fact, his anger and compassion over seeing his good friend dying ultimately leads to this. Jesus brings life to the dead. Notice what happens in verse 43. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
one of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones back in the early 1900s, he said that Jesus had to specify Lazarus come out because had he not done that, all the tombs would have busted open and everybody would have come out, right? It's like you almost sense the power in this text where Jesus is saying, hey, just Lazarus today, right? Just Lazarus today, I need you to come out. And, G- and Lazarus comes out. Friends, every time Jesus encounters death in the gospels that we have an account of, he always ruins the funeral by raising the person from the dead because Jesus hates death and he's not okay with it. It's an enemy, it's an intruder and he came to wage war on death. And friends, Jesus ultimately is gonna do this. He's gonna destroy death by dying himself. It's hard for us to see this because we miss over this verse, but the events that happen in John 11 of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead are a domino effect of what ultimately leads to Jesus himself getting arrested and wrongly accused and eventually put to death himself. Look at John eleven fifty three. As the religious leaders watch this story with Lazarus, the religious leaders of Jesus' day say this. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Friends, do you see this? Jesus takes Lazarus out of his tomb and by so doing ensures that he's going to enter his own tomb. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, but by so doing ensures that he's going to come under the same death nail that Lazarus experienced. Jesus dies on a cross. And what's crazy about this story is that he's not just dying as an act of symbolic love for humanity. He's dying bearing the full weight of our death and our dysfunction and our sin and our brokenness and our chaos. He dies with that all on his shoulders and and he experiences the full weight of what we should have experienced. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it's not just that God the Father is saying, yes, He really is the son and everything he says about himself is true. No, Jesus is ensuring that because he walked out of his tomb, friends, you and I, we get to walk out of our tombs one day too. Death will be defeated. Jesus has destroyed death by dying and not just death, but death's enemies of dysfunction and brokenness and sin and the chaos that it's unleashed on planet earth. Jesus died for all of those things too. And he rose again saying, I hold the keys to death itself. And now it doesn't get the last word. And even if you die, I'm going to return one day to fully establish my kingdom and your bodies will be resurrected to new life and you will live with me in the type of world that I've created and designed in the first place before sin ever existed. This is what Easter is all about. N.T. Wright says this, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on the earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. And that's where I want to close today is just by saying you are being invited out of death into life. And not just physical death, but death and all of his friends. You're being invited out of death into life. What do you do? What's the invitation to a person that wants to step out of death into life? Three postures that God is inviting into. The first is to repent. That word in Greek is metanoia. It literally means to have a change of heart and direction. If you're going this way to metanoia, to repent is to go this way. It's to turn and say, instead of defining good and evil for myself, right and wrong for myself, living out of my own identity as I've designed and created it, 
I'm going to go and follow Jesus. I'm actually going to trust him. I'm going to repent. Second posture is to believe. It's to believe the way that Jesus asks Mary and Martha in this passage, do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? Their response was, yes, we believe. Today you're being invited to answer that same question. Do you believe in the resurrection and the life that Jesus actually is the resurrection and the life? You're being invited to believe who he says he was, that he wasn't just a moral teacher or a philosopher or some good example of us of how to live, but he was God coming in the flesh to put death to death and bring us the life that God intended us to have. Then the third posture is to follow. So it's not just a matter of repenting and believing. Some of you have been told in Oklahoma that all you have to do is just repent and in your head assent to a certain set of doctrines, but actually to be a follower of Jesus is to follow after him. It's to take on his role of disciple. It's to take on what he defines as right in the world or wrong. It's to actually embrace how he defines living out our humanity on earth. You and I are being invited to follow. And how do you say yes to Jesus? How do you say yes to his, his call to repent and believe and follow? It's through this ancient act called baptism. In three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to baptize people, and we would love to invite you into that process because baptism is when you stand in the water before God and you say, God, I, I have sinned. I have rebelled. I have uh, lived in a way that's brought death, not just in my own life, but in the world around me. And I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. And so what happens is that person goes under the water the same way Jesus went in his grave. We go under a watery grave. And then that person comes out of the water. And what's being symbolized there is that they're being united to Jesus Christ. The old them dies. The new them comes out of the water with a new identity, a new way of life, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually follow after the commands that Jesus has given us. Friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're being invited into the waters of baptism to say, yes to Jesus, to say yes to repentance, to say yes to following him. And when you say yes to Jesus, you are saying yes to life and no to death because Jesus came to bring you out of death, out of darkness and offer you his life. So in light of that, I want to invite you, would you stand with me today? I don't know where you're at with all of this. Maybe you're in a place of wrestling, but I just want to invite you, would you please, please wrestle and take seriously the commands and the demands and the ways that Jesus describes himself and what he's calling you to. He's not asking you to be moral. He's not asking you to clean up your life. He's not asking you to do more. Jesus is inviting you to experience forgiveness of sins and real life with him. So I want to invite you into that life.